I want to open with a couple of scenarios to get us thinking, hopefully, in the right way. The first having to do with my wedding. It was uh, this summer, 17 years ago, that I got married and had a great wedding. There was so much about our wedding or my wedding that I enjoyed. The weather was nice and hot, just like I like it. Practically all of our family members and friends were there. The cake was great. The food was great. The limousine ride was great. I have a big, long list here. Uh, the, the post-reception reception at the lake was great. The rehearsal was great. The rehearsal dinner was great. Even the chubby guy in the robe that did the officiating, I didn't mind him too bad either. Even It was just all, it was all great in so many different ways. It was a great day. But there's something about that great day that I didn't include on the list. Think about what it is. Another scenario, another great event in my life, a number of great events, I should say, started about 11 or so years ago when we started making these trips every now and then to the hospital, five of them in particular. <laughs> and uh, we started going to the hospital with the birth of babies, so many things about those trips that I wrote down that were really great. They were great experiences. The doctors were great. The nurses were great. The hospital staff was great. The food was, well, better than nothing. So that's great. Uh, the rooms were great. Uh, having family members and friends that visit, that was great. The family lounge and the free food and the little sodas. They're not really free, but, but that was great because you think they're free at the time. Uh, the pediatrician was great. The stuff they sent home with us was great. The aftercare was great. It was just a great overall experience. Going to the hospital, going to the maternity ward. But there's something strangely missing from my list. In fact, it's someone who's strangely missing from both lists. I didn't ever mention, I love my wedding because I got to marry my wife. <laughs> Molly really is what made that day the greatest day and why I love it so much. I got to marry the woman I wanted to marry. And quite frankly, uh, you know, it doesn't, who cares about all your family and friends showing up and who cares what the decorations are like or what the cake looks like or what the food is like or, those are incidentals. What's really splendid about the day is I, I get to marry the woman of my dreams and, and she's going to say yes, and she did, praise God. And, and we, we got married. We got, we got married. Commitment for life. And, and, and to be quite frank, I got what I wanted. I got to marry Molly. With children, it wasn't about the, you know, we're going to send you home with a pitcher that the water goes in, you know, and the throw-up dish. Wow, free throw-up dish that cost me $7,000, you know. I mean, and somehow you're tricked in thinking it's good because it's free. You know, don't throw that away. Got to have a throw-up dish. I mean, with all of the good things that surround having babies, you know what was missing from my list? I got to be a dad, you know, five times over, and I, and I get to have sons, I get to have daughters and, and pour my life into them and see them respond. And, you know, the greatest part about going to the maternity ward is you, you get to have a baby, not the stuff, as good as some of it is. I use these two illustrations because they clearly show the foolishness and they clearly show the, the wrongheadedness, if you will, of what happens when you see good things great things as the ultimate 
thing. Everything goes wrong when that happens. Everything becomes sort of twisted and perverse. Even those good things and those great things are are not really good and they're not really great if you're really not seeing them in the context of the greater big picture. It's a great lead-in for us to talk about Jesus Christ who is Christianity. Jesus Christ who is the gospel. Isn't it great that we have all of these many, many blessings that come with being a Christian? Isn't it great that we have Christian relationships and Christian encouragement and God gives us spiritual gifts when we become believers and there's all this great we can do. We can sing together and worship God musically and we can pray together and find encouragement in that and we can belong and have all of these great, great things and do missions and do evangelism and study the Bible, listen to sermons. Teach Bible studies. They're, they're, these are all great things, and I'm not trying to downplay them, but something is terribly amiss when those things, those good byproducts, those good compliments become central. And the reality is that happens. And that happens in the life of churches. That happens in Christianity at large. It happens in our lives when we become focused on those great aspects of Christianity and we don't focus on Christ. How about this? We might even focus on the gospel in a sense because after all, it means forgiveness and it means Christ's righteousness to me and it means all these great things. But something is horribly amiss. Something is terribly perverted. To use a word that's very ugly and descriptive, but it's so well used. When Christ is not everything, and it's all about Him. I love it that we're going to study the book of Romans together as a church and make a good investment in studying that book together because one thing Romans will not allow us to do is to look at the, I hate to call them incidentals because that sounds uh, too degrading, but to look at the benefits and to look at the great things that Christ gives and offers without seeing Christ as the great one. And the introduction to Romans is no different. The introduction to Romans exalts Christ. The introduction to Romans is all about Christ. That's because the whole book is all about Christ. It causes us to be pulled away from seeing the incidentals, if you will, and to see Christ as central to everything. And even when you look at the benefits, it causes you to go back and to see that Christ is the gospel. Christ is Christianity. It has everything to do with Him all of the time. And I'm thrilled about that. I am so fired up about that. By now, I've had two low-carb monster energy drinks. I've had two protein bars. I'm ready for the second service, and I'm so thrilled about it. But I could be on zero sleep with no caffeine in my system and no nutrients in my system, and I would be just as thrilled. Because we get to focus on Christ and to see Him as everything. And now God has been so gracious to allow us to embark upon this journey, if you will, at seeing Christ as central to everything, all of the time, everywhere in this great study. I do want it to create a personal reformation in our lives, in the life of this church, in the life of this community, in the life of the world. We began last time looking at six Christ-exalting features of the introduction. The first seven verses provide the introduction. We divided it up into six features, Christ-exalting features, and I want to review the first three ever so briefly, and then we'll look at the remaining three after that. 
Number one, and I, these are a little bit cumbersome, sorry about that, you can abbreviate if you'd like. Number one, first Christ-exalting feature is the Pauline authorship of Romans. The Pauline authorship of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul wrote Romans. How is that exalting to Christ? Well, if you know anything about Paul and his background, you know that it's exalting to Christ. Because Paul was a spiritual thug. Paul was against Christ. He was opposed to Christ. He was opposed to his people. He was opposed to everything Christ. And now he writes Romans, which is a book all about Christ and how great he is. Which gives evidence to the fact that he was converted by Christ. And Christ is powerful enough to do that even in his life. This whole book is a testimony on one level of how great Christ is even in Paul's life. A second Christ-exalting feature is the divine authorship of the gospel. The divine authorship of the gospel at the end of chapter 1, verse 1, it's called the gospel of God. God is the one behind all of this. God is central to all of this. This is not somehow Christ versus the Father or anything like that. This is according to His perfect plan. It's His good news and, quite frankly, His righteousness, which we learn about in Romans, apart from His grace and His mercy and apart from His great Son, would not be good news to us at all. But it is good news because He perfectly fulfills His justice, perfectly fulfills uh, all that needs to be fulfilled through Christ. And so it ends up being God is the ultimate author of this, And so God ends up being the one who is exalted through His Son, Christ. Number three, a third Christ-exalting feature is the scriptural legitimacy of the gospel. The scriptural legitimacy of the gospel. The the truthfulness of the gospel. That's in verses 2 and 3. We saw that last time. This is not new. It's not plan B. It's not something God just thought up after a while because of what happened to Jesus and they didn't accept him, so on and so forth. This is Old Testament reaching way back to Genesis, moving all the way forward. This was God's plan for his son, ultimately for the world, for us. Paul appeals to the highest court, if you will. Where can you find ultimate authority showing that this is all legitimate and not something someone thought up? You find it in Scripture. And so he references that in verses 2 and 3. Well, let's move on to number 4. Number 4, the unprecedented significance of the resurrection. The unprecedented significance of the resurrection. We're going to see in just a moment that Jesus rose from the dead. That puts Jesus in a category all his own. He is different from every other religious leader. He is different from every other person on planet Earth. He's amazing. He's unique. He's majestic. And we're going to see he is powerful. Let's look at verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, it says, "...who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead." Jesus was raised from the dead. That's amazing. But it's not just that, and obviously I don't want to downplay that. That's of utmost importance. But it doesn't just say He was raised from the dead, and that is unique, no doubt. That's unprecedented, no doubt. But he was raised from the dead, it says, with power. In fact, to look again, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And what I do want to do as we're impressed with his resurrection, I want us to even be more impressed with his resurrection. By stepping back a little bit, 
keeping our minds engaged and really contemplating and chewing a little bit on what is he getting at? Is he merely mentioning the resurrection as something great, which would merit good discussion because it is great? I would submit to you he's doing more than that. He wants us to see the resurrection in a unique light here regarding Jesus Christ. Did you notice there that it says in verse 4, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection? That raises all kinds of interpretive questions too. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection? Let's step back and, and realize what Jesus claimed and who Jesus was before the resurrection. If we were to go to John chapter 8, we won't take time to go there. But in John chapter 8, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is referring to his, his pre-existence, to his eternal existence, even older than Abraham, which was a long, long, long time before Jesus was ever born, not to mention raised from the dead. So he, he's eternal. He didn't come into existence at the resurrection. He didn't even come into existence at the incarnation. And it's quite a profound statement when he says, I am. He's using a title for God himself. And the Jews knew what he was doing because they picked up rocks. They want to kill him as a heretic. Jesus claimed to be the eternal one. But, but that's not all. If we were to look at other passages, we would see that he, he, didn't, uh, not, he not only existed in eternity past, but he existed as the Son he didn't become the son at the incarnation. He didn't become the son at the resurrection. And I realize we're going to have to deal with Romans, but we're getting set up to do that. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son. Who did God send? The second person of the Trinity? Yes, but the second person of the Trinity who He sent was the Son. Listen to Galatians 4, 4. God sent forth His Son. Or most clear... John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus is eternal. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus was sent into this world via the incarnation, and He was sent as the Son. I believe with all my heart, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Otherwise, these verses don't make sense. And when you deviate from this, you end up getting yourself into theological hot water in one way or another. But now as we go back to Romans 1.4, daring not to say that He was not the Son in eternity past, daring not to say that He, that, that he didn't exist in eternity past, when you read Romans 1.4, it no doubt says something though. Something happened! It says, who was declared the Son of God with power. But, but He was already the Son of God before He even came to earth. He existed before, way before even Abraham. He's the eternal one. So what is He saying? I want to encourage you to see what He's saying is something that shows how great Christ is and how the resurrection from the dead underscored that like never before. Let me read it, perhaps with a different emphasis, as you look at your Bible at Romans 1.4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. I think it needs to be read that way. He was declared the Son of God with power. Remember Jesus' earthly ministry before His crucifixion, before His resurrection. 
Yes, he was powerful, and yes, he showed his power in amazing ways at times, but it was characteristically marked by purposeful weakness. Remember, he was betrayed. Remember, he was mocked. Remember, he was rejected. Remember, he was crucified. Purposeful weakness. But after he goes to the cross and raises again from the dead, it looks a whole lot different. It looks a whole lot different. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Everything changes in one sense. Listen to what John Murray says in his classic Romans commentary. He was instated in a position of sovereignty and invested with power, an event which in respect of investiture with power surpassed everything that could have previously been ascribed to him in his incarnate state. He goes on to say, this new phase of his messianic lordship, good word, or new phase of sovereignty, His position as the one who has been raised from the dead, never to be mocked again, never to be crucified again, now functioning as the ruling and reigning sovereign king, looks a lot different than it did before. And it happened in connection with his death and then his resurrection from the dead. That's what he's getting at. We're to be all the more impressed with Christ. We love Christ, the meek one. We love Christ, the humble one. Absolutely. We love Christ that he actually was wrong for our benefit. Absolutely. But we also love Christ in light of the fact that there will be no more of that. He has been declared, officially acknowledged by God as the Son of God with power now. And we're to be impressed. We are to be amazingly impressed by this. What I want you to do now is turn to Psalm chapter 2. I realize this is a bit of a long way around this, but it's created enough confusion in the past. I don't want it to create confusion. I want it to be clear. And so we'll invest the majority of our time here on this particular point. But Psalm 2, I'm asking you to turn there because Psalm 2 is what is being referenced in Romans chapter 1. So if you go to Psalm 2, you see what is behind Romans 1. And by the way, Psalm 2 is also quoted in Acts chapter 2. It's also quoted in Acts chapter 13. And you should know this. Psalm 2 and and Christ being declared the Son of God is never used in connection in the New Testament to His birth. It's always used in connection to His resurrection. It's not talking about His birth. It's talking about His resurrection. Look up every New Testament reference to Psalm 2 and you'll see that it's clear, for example, in Acts 13. Okay, reading Romans 1-4, let's go to Psalm 2 and see what's behind it. This This is talking about the enthronement of the Davidic sovereign, messianic king is what it is. Talking about the same thing. Look at Psalm 2, verse 1. I love this. One of my favorite psalms. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed? Why are the people, the people of significance, why are they against God? and Why are they against His king? Why is there rebellion against Him? Verse 3, they say, 
Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The people are saying, we don't need God's laws. We don't need God's sovereignty. We want freedom. We're our own people. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and, and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed... That's the same idea of what we're seeing in Romans 1.4. I have installed, I have enthroned, I have coronated my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I have installed you. Today I have enthroned you. Not incarnation. Go back to Romans 1. Not yet. But go to Acts 13. Go to Acts 2. It's talking about resurrection. When did God declare the Son, the Son of God, with power, with sovereignty, with dominion as this great sovereign King? The resurrection is when He did it. That's when He did it. This is an amazing reality. So people are against God. They're so against God, they kill His Son. His name is Jesus. But a part of God's perfect plan, according to Acts 2, Old Testament, I will enthrone that Son. I will enthrone that Son. Enthrone that Son. And He will be the Son of God with power. If we can continue on in Psalm chapter 2, look at the, the kind of power that Jesus wields as the installed king. And a lot of this is second coming kind of stuff that we're waiting for, but no doubt he raised from the dead and no doubt he is this king now. It says in verse 8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. See, he's the sovereign ruler. He has the nations. And every and the very ends of the earth, your possession, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. The Son now holds the staff of iron that, that is used for judging. You shall shatter them, those who oppose you, like earthenware. That's sovereign. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Pat's translation, you better watch it. He's not passive anymore. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Verse 11, so splendidly, worship the Lord with reverence, with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12 is the great call, do homage to the Son. As one translation puts it, kiss the Son. He's not the weak one anymore who's allowing you to give it to Him on the chin. He has now been installed as the ruler, the sovereign. You know what you'd better do? You'd better kiss Him on the foot as you would one who is above you as you want one who is a king. You're in bowed down position and you are paying him homage because he was declared the Son of God with power at the resurrection. You see all this? This is amazing. Keeps going. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are though are all who take refuge in Him. Jesus is the sovereign King. Jesus is the one who has been declared the Son of God with power. This is why we see Him as great. This is why we see Him as having authority. And by the way, I should say, in light of Acts 17, when God raised Jesus from the dead, declaring Him the Son of God with power, it put everybody on notice. 
It put the world on notice. Because if you read Acts chapter 17 in Paul's sermon there, he says that God raised his son Jesus from the dead as proof that he was going to use his son to judge the world. Declared the son of God with power, a la Psalm 2, because he's going to judge. He's absolutely going to judge. Acts 17.31 He furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So, if you're still in the mindset of thinking of Jesus as meek and lowly, you need to change your thinking. And every time you ever think of or hear about anything about Jesus Christ, Raising from the dead, there's motivation. Jesus was raised from the dead so that he would be enthroned as the Son of God with power because he's the sovereign king who's going to judge. We should be impressed. The introduction to Romans should just cause us to have our mouth wide open and awesome. Amazing! He came, yes, meek and lowly, without significance, yes, born to parents without significance, born in a town without significance, absolutely. And He humbled Himself for our benefit, yes. He was mocked for our benefit. He was crucified for our benefit. But having been raised from the dead, God declared Him the Son of God with power, and He put the world on notice that He's going to judge. Dun, 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 dun. That's what you hear when you hear Romans 1.4. And we're supposed to be impressed and to say, tell me more about this great one. Tell me more about how it is I can come to Him and pay homage to Him so I don't face His rod, His wrath. Isn't it great? It's just magnificent to see Him as the supreme one enthroned by God. I love this. I want to curse the man who invented clocks right now and just say, may he die a bad death ten times over. Just to say, this, this is, we're talking about Christ. And we are, don't misunderstand, we are so thankful that he came and was weak and insignificant. By his own perfect will, he was those things. But as one keen observer said, next time it will be different. He's the sovereign ruler and we get to know him. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It shows God's grace. I think we're supposed to read Romans 1, 4 that way. Well, let's keep moving because clocks do exist. I, I'd like to, I'll be a postmodern for a while and say time doesn't exist. I don't care what you say. That's your interpretation. My interpretation is it's 10 a.m. and this is still Sunday school time. <laughs> it doesn't work. It frustrates me. All right, let's keep going in verse 4. We're not to the next point yet, but you see that it's not just God who is the author of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. It's not just all about Christ in one sense. There's someone involved here with the resurrection in chapter 1, verse 4. It says toward the end there, according to the spirit of holiness. 
And I take it that that's the Holy Spirit. Good, faithful Bible teachers differ on this particular issue. But it's a title that can be used for the Holy Spirit. I see there we have perfect concert amongst the triune Godhead. We've got the gospel of God, verse 1. We've got it being all about Christ as a supreme manifestation and the great reality of the gospel. And then we have the Holy Spirit and His fingerprints are all over the whole thing. He's absolutely involved. And we do see, we could take the time to see another day. We see the Holy Spirit obviously involved way back when, even in, in inspiration, talking about the coming of the Messiah. Then we see the Holy Spirit involved in announcing the birth of the Messiah. We see the Holy Spirit involved absolutely in Matthew chapter 1 with the incarnation of the Messiah. And then we see throughout His whole earthly ministry, even so much as to be have Jesus led by the Spirit to be tempted... The Holy Spirit's fingerprints are all over the ministry of Jesus Christ. And certainly we even see it here with His resurrection. And we see it after the resurrection with the Spirit's work of regeneration. And we could just do a whole study on the Holy Spirit. But He's certainly involved here doing what it is, doing what it is that He does best. And you know what He does best? He magnifies Christ. Listen to John chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit who is coming in a new and unique way, He said, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify Me. You can know that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and working in amazing ways when Christ is exalted. And with the resurrection, which certainly was all about Christ being exalted, as He was declared the Son of God with power, it has the Holy Spirit's fingerprints all over it because that's what He does. He exalts the Son. He's involved in His ministry. Well, let's leave that alone for now. We see the significance of the resurrection, and I hope, if necessary, you see it like you've never seen it before. Amazing. Let's move on to number five, and we'll do this one briefly. The divine entitlement of Jesus. The divine entitlement of Jesus is the next Christ-exalting feature. It's also in verse four. It's inseparably linked from number four. But number five, the divine entitlement of Jesus. Let's relook at verse 4, which told us he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In one sense, it's kind of like he throws it in. In another sense, it's not thrown in at all. He's great. He's magnificent. God declared him the Son of God with power at the resurrection, and it's all with the Holy Spirit involved. And he is Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, it's tied to, to real human history, and no doubt, which means uh, a savior. So it's talking about sa- salvation. And he's Christ. He's the official Davidic one. He, he's the, the, the official Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. So he's got fulfillment all over him. And then you end it with Lord. Sovereign, which makes sense in light of the fact that he was declared the Son of God with power. He's the sovereign. So he, he reminds us about who Christ is. We need the reminding because we think Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. And I don't know about Lord. You know who we're talking about here when we're talking about this one who was installed? Jesus, the Savior, the real human being who lived and breathed among us, became one of us. He is Christ. He's the promised Messiah, the promised King, the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. And not only that, He's Lord. And that would be Lord over all. He's the sovereign over all. But He certainly would be Lord over us. And He says, our Lord as Christians. And I love the personal aspect of that, don't you? 
He's the great one who's installed. He's the great one who's been declared the Son of God with power. He's the amazing sovereign, to use a theological word. He's the one who's transcendent above all. He's unreachable in that sense. But to use that other important theological word, he's also imminent. He's close. He's personal. He's our Lord. He belongs to us as Christians. He cares about us. He's not just the ruler who has the rod of iron and who will judge and who will smash. If you come to Him by His grace, you can say He's our Lord. Yeah, that's my God. That's my God we're talking about. The one who redeemed me and bought me and loves me and cares about me. Isn't He great? And the Christians who would have gotten this letter and we who are believers, we say He's great. He's our Lord. We love Him so. It may also be that he calls him Lord with the intent of acknowledging his divinity. Whether he does that here or not on purpose, he certainly acknowledges that all over the place. But it may be, given the fact that this word Lord is used in the Septuagint at times in place of Yahweh, maybe what he's getting at here. Yahweh, the the self-existent God. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Our Yahweh. Our our Lord. Our self-existent God who, who, who belongs to us by His grace. We certainly belong to Him. With that idea in mind, listen to this illustration. The meaning of this title shows why the early Christians would not apply the name Lord to any other. If they'd done so, they would have been repudiating Christ. One famous case is that of the aged bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, who was martyred on February 22nd AD, February 22nd AD 156. As he was driven to the arena, two of the city officials who had respect for him because of his age and reputation tried to persuade him to comply with the demand to honor Caesar. Here's what they said. What harm is there saying Caesar is Lord and and burning incense and, and saving yourself? Polycarp refused. Later in the arena, he explained his position saying, For 86 years I have been Christ's slave and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp refused to call Caesar Lord because Lord meant God and there can only be one God. If Polycarp had called Caesar Lord, then Jesus could not have been Lord for Polycarp and Polycarp could not have been a Christian. Jesus has that title. Christ, Messiah, Messiah, promised King, and Lord. Sovereign, Yahweh, God. If you're not impressed with Him, you should be. He's amazing. And Paul wants us to see Him as amazing in the introduction to this book. He's everything. He's the gospel, ultimately. He is Jesus, Savior, Christ, Messiah, Lord, Yahweh, God. I loved what John Murray said about this. I love this. I wish I was so profound. Here we have an identification in this three-phase title. Listen to this. 
of the person who is himself the gospel. That's good. That is really good. Here we have the description of the person who is himself the gospel. That goes back to the introduction this morning. First and foremost, it's not about the benefits of the gospel, as great as they are. First and foremost, it's about the supreme object of our faith. It's about Christ because in the end, ultimately, He is the gospel. And so we worship Him and we live for Him and we love Him. I think Paul wants us to feel that. I think God, under the uh, writing His Word through Paul, wants us to feel that and sense that. Let's move on to the sixth and final Christ-exalting feature of the introduction to Romans. And that is the sovereign reach and power of Christ's gospel. The sovereign reach and the sovereign power of Christ's gospel is the final component that he mentions that should cause us to say, wow, Christ is so great over everyone. And His gospel is to be for everyone. He's amazing. That's Christ exalting. All of this in the introduction. Look at verse 5. Through whom, it's talking about Christ, we know that. We, probably talking about Himself and what's called an editorial we, but it doesn't really matter in the interpretation. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And we need to move on, but just quick if I can. Okay, we're talking about this great Christ, and He's so magnificent, declared the Son of God with power, Holy Spirit involved, Jesus Christ our Lord, and it's through Him that, that, that we've received. And what have we received? we received grace, and, and God's free gift, and He's given us everything, and grace is wonderful, and it's joyous, and He's given it to us. And not only that, He's given us, He's given me my apostleship. He's given me my authority. I have authority in the churches. I have authority over the churches, Paul is saying. But you know where it came from? It all came from Christ. You know where the grace came from that even allows my heart to beat and my pulse to pump? I need you to know this. Before I write this letter to you, before I write you this profound letter, I need you to know, it's as if he's saying, you know, everything I have, from my authority to my life, to everything I have, I need you to know It's because of the sovereign power and overarching goodness of Christ. I think that's going to be important for us to remember as we study Romans. Because we'll be amazed. I mean, there are are unbelieving scholars who study Romans in the Greek text and they're amazed by it. There are people who give their life to studying the Bible even though they don't believe in this Christ, they don't believe in this God, but they're amazed by portions of it. And Romans is one of those portions. I mean, this guy's got logic on fire and the argumentation and the way he's unpacking his argument and all of these things are are quite staggering. And then you start talking about this amongst believers and we say, Paul, man, what a mind. This is amazing stuff in here. It's absolutely, in one sense, it's so simple. And in one sense, it's just more than I could possibly take getting a sip of water out of a fire rider and it just blows me away. And before you know it, we're going, Paul, 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 Paul. And what we need to do is remember chapter 1, verse 5. 
Everything he has, he received. It's good to remember. So as you're impressed with Paul, as I'm impressed with Paul, don't be impressed with the throw-up dish. Right? You just show how perverted you are in your thinking if you're impressed with the free throw-up dish that costs you $7,000. Okay? Paul himself is the one who referred to believers as, you know, the clay pots. So we're not too far off. Be impressed with Christ. He wants you to be impressed with Christ. But we need to move on in verse 5. Still being impressed with his sovereign reach and power and the power of the gospel. What's he trying to do in verse 5? He says, to bring about the obedience of faith. My apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith. And you can grammatically uh, take that as the, the, the obedience that true saving faith produces. And that's biblically true and theologically true. And that could be what he means here. I'm going to take it a different way and in good company. Take it is the obedience. How does he say it? The obedience of faith. I'm going to take it as faith, belief in Christ, believing the gospel is an act of obedience. Grammatically just as legitimate. Now start trying to get your mind around that one. I think what Paul's getting at is I received apostleship, I received grace so that I could aim at, by the grace of God being used by Christ, to bring about the obedience of other people to believe the gospel. Because the gospel is to be believed. It's an act of obedience to believe the gospel. You say, is that biblical? Listen to a couple passages. Romans chapter 10, verse 16. However, they did not all heed... ESV, KJV says obey. So I'm going to read it that way. However, they did not all obey the good news. They didn't all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Or how about even clearer than that, Acts 16.31, when they say, what do we do to be saved? Paul, in command mode, it's an imperative, believe, command, you believe, act of obedience. In the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. You had better believe that believing is a command, that the gospel is to be obeyed. And how do you obey the gospel? You believe the gospel. We could talk about how faith is a gift and so on and so forth. We'll do that a different day. We're not doing it right now. I know the Bible teaches this. I think it's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 1. People are to believe the gospel. It's not just people should believe the gospel because it would be good for them because Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. Psalm 2, remember, people are to obey the gospel. They are to believe the truth about Him because if they don't believe the truth about Him, the Sovereign One who has this power is going to strike them down. That is what Psalm 2 says. Now, this might really be tweaking your evangelistic methodology because it's tweaking mine. You know, what I say, I say, you know what? I shared the gospel the other day. 
share. Let's have share and care time. Let me share with you something. And since you're on the throne, you're sovereign, you'll decide if you accept what I'm sharing with you or not. Let me present something to you. Like when I was a sales rep, I would make a sales presentation and I would present my proposal so that the sovereign CEO or whoever it is could decide to buy my product or not. It's not how it is. The Son of God who was declared, enthroned as the Son of God with power by God has commissioned Paul. And his intent is to bring about the obedience of faith. His intent is to preach the truth about the sovereign Lord who sits on the throne and to tell people, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In Acts chapter 17, Paul uses the complement to belief, which is repent. And he says, God has declared that all men everywhere must, what? Repent. It's not sharing and caring time. You're sovereign, you decide. I would suggest to you, and I'm going to be guilty of this, the reason we share the gospel and the reason we present the gospel is because we haven't had enough time to dwell on and think on the sovereignty of Jesus Christ that was granted to Him officially when He was raised from the dead. He's there. He is the sovereign King. He's the ruler. And if I have that drilled in my mind and I know that to be true, and I know that it is true, but I really need to have it drilled in my mind, I'm not going to do a lot of presenting or sharing doesn't mean I won't be tactful, dry, loving, out of love for people. But you know, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is the King. And you know what His message is for you? Believe in Him as the King and as the Savior. And you will have eternal life. Don't. And you will have eternal condemnation. I love it when the Bible messes with me. I love it. It shows it's alive and active and it shows that I'm alive, maybe even spiritually alive. Let's reevaluate our view of Christ and let's see what kind of Christ we actually believe in in our evangelistic methods. That's what I would suggest. In this section of Scripture, we're to be seeing the, the sovereign power and the sovereign reach of Christ. Here it is with Paul to bring about the obedience of faith. That's what he's aiming at. That's what he's looking for. But then he says, extending this reach very, very far, as far as it could go, there's no boundaries to this reach. Verse 5 goes on to say, among, the, among all the Gentiles. Among all the Gentiles... Yeah, we read that verse because you know what? We're living in 21st century America. And you know, when we go to the Christian bookstore, we see Jesus, you know, with feathered hair and it's sandy blonde and you know, he looks like he lives down the street from you. So when we read this, oh yeah, the gospel bring about the faith among all the Gentiles. I don't know what that means, but you know, what's the next verse say? It's meant to say, it's meant to cause you to say, Jesus Christ is greater than I even thought he was. This is amazing because Jesus Christ is a Jew. A Jewish man from Israel. 
sovereign over everyone, including the Gentiles. And you have in the Bible, Jews and Gentiles. So now we've got a sovereign reach over everybody. And in one level, when you first read it, you think, if you're really just thinking, just engage your mind and you read among all the Gentiles and you think, that's pretty odd. It's pretty odd to have a Jewish Messiah Savior somehow impacting Gentiles? You know, Israel, the last time I checked, and I just checked, because this is really small, tiny, insignificant. When we see that, we are seeing an opportunity for Christ to be exalted. Because when we read this, we're seeing an opportunity for Christ to be exalted. Sovereign king, born in Bethlehem? My brother pastors Bethlehem Bible Church, and he hates it every day of his life. Bethlehem, the insignificant little scrappy town? You know, scrappy town Bible church. (laughs) What? Insignificant Bible church. Yeah, that's pretty good. Got a ring to it, doesn't it? You know, how about Zion Bible Church? You know, now we're on to something. Bethlehem Bible Church? Give me a break. Well, we're too biblically illiterate to think about it, so everybody's okay with it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. It wasn't in the notes. Shouldn't have mentioned it. But you get the idea, I hope, among all the Gentiles, it does in fact exalt Christ because He's not just the Jewish Savior. This is not just for the Jews. He is... Sovereign over all. They are very different than we are. Jews are. I'm going to get a big awakening of that. Tuesday, I fly from LAX to Tel Aviv, 15 hours. Makes my legs hurt thinking about sitting that long. Get off the plane, I'm going to see a lot of Jewish people. And I'm going to feel like I'm in a foreign land, because I will be. And I'm going to look like a foreigner, because I will be. And it will seem strange because I am not one of them. It's strange that Jesus has this kind of sovereignty to be sovereign over among all the Gentiles. But let the strangeness of it then catapult your view of Christ to see His magnificent splendor that He, the Jewish one, is sovereign over everybody. And we're going to Jew and Gentile to tell them about the great Jewish Savior who is not only Jewish in His Saviorhood. Make sense? Let's keep going and see the ultimate reason behind this. The ultimate reason behind all of this, seeing His sovereign reach, His great gospel power is in verse 5 where it then says, for His name's sake. For His name... Why, why do we do this? Why does Paul do what he does? Why do we do what we do? Why do we do evangelism? Why do we exist? Why do we function as a church? Why am I up here ranting and raving about how great Jesus is? Why do we do everything? There it is, right there. There's the motto of mottos. For His namesake. Well, wait a minute. Aren't you going to go to all these Gentiles to tell them about how they can be forgiven and about how Jesus died a substitutionary death and if you believe in Him, you'll be justified and have His righteousness and all these great benefits for you? Well, sure, we're going to talk about those things because the Bible talks about those things. But you know the ultimate reason why Paul's going to go on in Romans to write about justification? The ultimate reason he's doing everything he's doing is right here for his namesake, for the fame of Jesus, for the the, the exaltation of Christ. Somebody told me just recently they had had a family member visiting Omaha Bible Church. I don't remember who it was, so I'm going to use it as an illustration. And they had a family member visiting, and their conclusion was when they left, they said, you know what, based upon what you do there, the way you talk there, so on and so forth is how I took it. 
Your God is an egomaniac. Now chew on that for a minute. It's wrong and twisted, but they're on to something. Egomaniac would be somehow if he wasn't credible, not deserving, and he wanted it to be all about him. If God were if Jesus were not God, he would be an egomaniac. But if he's God, all things are for him, and if he's the redeemer, and he's the savior. And everything we have was received from Him. It is all about Him. And we could push it a little bit further and say that if it wasn't all about Him, if what He does isn't ultimately all about Him, though we benefit, then He's an idolater. For His namesake. Why do you exist? Why do you come to this church? Why do we support missionaries? Why do we do evangelism? Why, 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 why? The answer is right there, for His namesake. I want to see more people bow the knee. I want to see more fathers come to know Jesus Christ and obey His gospel. Yes, their lives will be transformed, and that is wonderful. But then, perhaps by God's grace, that husband can impact his wife with the same message, and then their children, and then their relatives, and then someone else. And I want to see this happen to the greatest degree that could possibly happen in whatever order you want to have it happen. It could happen through the kids, through the wife, through the husband, through the friends. I want to see it happen on on as great a scale as possible. Why? Because it'll help people and be good for them. Yes, it will. Ultimate reason? No. For his namesake. Because he was declared, he was installed as the king with all power. It's fantastic. It's logical. It makes sense. It is good. It is right. It's why we exist. Let's have that be the conclusion. But then in passing, if we can just read the last two verses among whom you also are the called. <laughs> Those who, you, you, he's writing to the Romans, you were, you were effectually ushered into this relationship with him as the called. We'll talk more about that later days in Romans. You were the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, the personal, wonderful aspect to all of this, so it's not just that he does everything only for his name's sake. He also does, in fact, love. That's wonderful, and we will emphasize that in Rome, called as saints, which is pretty amazing, because these people certainly hadn't done enough things to achieve sainthood. Uh, they weren't even Christians very long. Why are they saints? They're saints because of Christ and his righteousness, no doubt, is what's going on here. The holy ones, verse 7 goes on to say, grace to you and peace, not empty words based upon what he will say about peace in chapter 5. We will see where does that come from. It comes from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which too is meant to exalt Christ because he's on the same level as the Father. (sighs) Tell me, is Christ great or what? He's amazing. We're supposed to see him as amazing and live for him. Absolutely we are. And evangelize for him. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the splendid opportunity we have to just scratch the surface and begin to think about the splendor of your son. We love him so. We love his power. We love his grace. We love the great forgiveness that he offers. And God, to the degree that we can and we want to grow in this area, we love his fame because he's the God man. 
the sovereign ruler who's been installed. God, we want to seek His glory above all other things. May that be true for us as a church. May it be true for us as individuals, as dads, as moms, as children, as grandparents and grandchildren, as citizens of this community, as citizens of this world. May we seek the fame of Jesus above all other things. In His name we pray. Amen.